The rest of you can turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're, uh, again, continuing our, our series on the anchors of our souls, finding the identities that God has given us that anchor our soul. And um, this morning we're looking at demystified, being in the know, and how this can be an anchor to us. Sometimes we don't think of knowledge as an anchor in a sense, but that's what we're going to look at this morning. And in a sense, uh, don't you hate being not in the know? You know, I have the unfortunate habit of occasionally not telling my wife what I've got planned. And then at some point nearing the time when I have something planned, being like, hey, uh, I might have forgotten to tell you this. It's my way of saying, man, I just remember right now that I didn't tell you this. But this is what's happening, and then she's typically not very happy with me, right? Because I didn't keep her in the know, you know. <laughs> I, was, I, I didn't inform her about what I was thinking so she could respond to it in time and say, no, that's not going to do it, whatever, you know, whatever the plan needs to be. Um, don't you hate it too, like, um, something happens and you didn't get informed. Like, all of your friends went and did, you know, they went to the concert, and they didn't just tell you, hey, there's a concert, and we're going to it. Like, why didn't you let me know? You know, I could have changed my schedule. I would have shown up. We like to be in the know, and we live, in a sense, in a, right, in a knowledge economy, right? That the more you know, the more, uh, more, in a sense, more power you have. We talk about knowledge being power, which in some ways... Um, you know, back, back in the day, probably didn't matter. It didn't care how much you knew. as if you couldn't get anything done. If you didn't have the tools, you didn't have the, the equipment. It didn't care how much you, didn't matter how much you knew. knew. It just mattered what, you, what, what resources you had. But now, in our, today's world, we live in a knowledge economy, which means it, it matters how much you know, right? It, in fact, the more knowledge you have in certain, especially in certain arenas, the more power, the more respect, the more things you can get done because of the knowledge you have. And uh, we, we are especially appreciative of certain, certain knowledge here. We're kind of rejoicing as a staff, okay, because uh, we've lived on basically like a certain level of internet for the past 15 years, and it's never changed uh, until right at the beginning of last year, we get finally got like LTE cell, like just LTE for the whole building. Like imagine your phone signal just for five people. Um, but we actually today we're celebrating because uh, we actually got fiber optics into the building, right? Which is really cool for those online. We shouldn't have as much problems with like you watching online like we've had in the past, which is good. But uh, like the guys that came in and did it, they didn't have to break a sweat. They didn't have to like have, uh, you know, we're going to have to dig this trench out. And they just like, okay, here it is. They hooked it up and it was on. And you're like, cool. You know, you have that kind of knowledge. You have to make that many people happy just by coming in and like flipping, you know, like you're good, you know. But that's the world in which we live. Knowledge is power. Knowledge is, is important. And, and, uh, if you're talking to a farmer, though, it's not so much the knowledge you have, it's knowing what season you're in, right? 
You've you got to know, if, am I in spring? What do I need to do in spring? You know, if I'm in fall, what do I need to do in fall? If I'm in you know, summer, what do I need to do in summer? It's, it's not so much about knowing something as knowing what, what season you're in in order to do something. So there's different ideas behind knowledge but, and what it means. But the idea that I want to get across, the big idea that I want to cross this morning is that you have an identity as someone who knows what God is doing in the world. That is, God is going to... God, in a sense, has revealed to you who he is, and not only who he is, but what he's doing, what his plan is, and that makes all the difference. You can anchor your soul to understanding this. And let's just notice what he says here. Again, I'll start reading in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. We're going to concentrate on verses 9 and 10 this morning. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So we have this, in a sense, this unfolding picture book, so to speak, it starts with the fact that he's saying, okay, here's the, the book of God's blessings for you, that every spiritual blessing that you have in Christ, the first one is that you're chosen in him. And then it pivots in love, the hinges in love to you're adopted into God's family. And the, then the pivots is in grace, the grace that we have in Christ then helps us to be redeemed and now we're pivoting in that grace in wisdom that comes from, in a sense, I'm using the term, being demystified. And this, he says it here, right, in verse, making unto us the mystery of his will. Now, when we see the term mystery a lot of times, and this goes to point number one, if I can turn my clicker on, there we go. Um, the term mystery, we, we pretty much associate with, you know, like Agatha Christie, right? Like mysteries on PBS, which means it's like, who did it? You just got to figure it out. If you can figure out the mystery, then it's good. But mystery in, in, in Greek culture, especially back in the day, was, was based on the idea that, that every, there's this hidden knowledge, this hidden understanding of the world and once you got that hidden knowledge, you could be, in a sense, initiated into that knowledge, and then you could operate according to this knowledge. You were inside, right? You were in the know, as we would say. And so, uh, in, in Greek culture, they're, they're, poly, they're polytheistic, so they didn't, they didn't have any problems like thinking in, in like multiple terms, in a sense, or having, in a sense, multiple loyalties, so to speak. So, for a Greek person, religiously, they, they, they had... Um, a god that they had to worship in relation to the state. Sometimes it was the actual emperor. Sometimes it was the god that the, the emperor or the king represented. And so you'd, you'd, have to, um, you'd have to go and you'd have to worship that god or go to that temple and worship. But it really wasn't, uh, I'm worshiping this god because I'm loyal to this god. It was, I'm worshiping this god because I don't want the king to think I'm disloyal to him. 
or the emperor to think I'm just loyal to them. Does that make sense? So you had that side of it. Then you had uh, kind of a philosophical approach to life. How do I think I should conduct myself? How do I think I should do this? Especially in regards to my desires. Should I be more stoic? Should I think about my desires as, you know, things I should control and lock down? Or maybe should be more, be more hedonistic? I'm just going to give in to all the desires of life and just search for pleasure. And they had different approaches to life. And then then the last thing that they had was these, this, what they called the mystery, and we add the term religions just so we understand, we, we, because we don't use the term mystery like they do, okay? But, so when I say mystery religions and mystery, it's the same term in Greek. So in the mystery religions, in that sense, what they did was, it, this is, you know, this is if you've been in, you know, in middle school or high school and you've taken Greek mythology, this is Greek mythology, Okay? These stories about these gods, right, who did different things. You have Zeus, right, and Hera, and they were married, and they had kids, and all these things happened, and those kids did certain things. And these gods do all these different things in, in relation, and it affects the world. And think about it from our perspective now, a couple thousand years later, we, we have to study these things. We're like, what in the world? Why would you? But... But in those days, those stories weren't like analyzed by people outside of it. You only got those stories about those gods if you got initiated in to the religion. And the the connection was the story had a connection to the real world. So something that happened to the god affected things that happened in the real world. So what would happen would be, would say, let's say, um, spring happens. Well, if you get initiated into the mystery of, let's say, I, I'm, just, I'm making this up here, but, but I'm doing enough of, get initiated in the mystery of Zeus, for instance. Well, spring happens because Zeus dies at a certain point in the story, and then he comes back to life, okay? And so when he comes back to life, the spring happens in the world, and so uh, that, that, event you can actually get initiated into. You go to a certain festival during the year at, the, at Zeus's temple, and you go into, it's only for those who are initiates. It's not just anybody can watch, but you get to participate in these secret, hidden uh, ceremonies that connect you with what Zeus experiences. And so not only does the world experience spring, but in a sense, you experience spring too. Does that make sense? So the ideas of, of mystery and the mystery religions is you're, you, there's this hidden knowledge, this hidden life, in a sense, that's happening, and, and you can be connected to it if you get in the know, so to speak. And it's not just in the know as if, okay, read a piece of paper. Can I say that? Read a piece of paper, and then, oh, I can know it. It's more, you go and you hear the story. It's told to you, and and, and you experience it in the ritual. And then you're connected to it. That's how they, and that's what, so they had to go to different temples at different times of the year and you experience different rituals and you could be an initiate of whatever God you wanted to follow. And you could change gods at different times. Why? Because you were just, you were trying to figure everything out. Aristotle was a, you know, a Greek philosopher, and he was trying to, to think about this. How does this work, and what does this mean, and uh, what does this relate in the real world? And he, he made the analogy of the man in the cave. I don't know, again, if you've 
heard this at school or whatever, the, the analogy of the man in the cave is, or the slaves in the cave is that they're, what if, what if all of humankind, in a sense, and the analogy is, we're, we're all in a cave, and the only way that they experienced light was through, you know, a hole in the cave shining in, and it would create shadows on the wall. And so the reality that they experienced was just the, the light playing off the shadows on the wall. And so they're saying, this is what life's about, is all these shadows playing off the wall. And suppose one person gets free, leaves the cave, and experiences light for the first time. And it would be really difficult for them. They would they'd be like, man, this is too bright. I can't see it. But if they stuck it out, if they went through the pain of experiencing the light for the first time, they would see what we all see and be like, oh, this is amazing. Look at the real world out here. And then if they tried to go back and tell the people in the cave, right, okay, this is what life is really like, the people in the cave would be like, you're ridiculous. We know what life is like. We see, the, we see these shadows playing across the cave wall. We know what life is really like. And if he tried to take some of them and drag them out, Plato argued, after Aristotle's analogy, Plato argued that if, if, if someone tried to drag someone out and see the light and see the reality, that they would kill him. which is what happened to Aristotle. And the analogy, too, is if you apply that in some ways to Christianity, right, is, is they killed Christ as well, right? This is what really life, life is really like. And they're like, no, we don't want to listen to you. We don't want to hear that. We want to get rid of that. And so this, this mystery knowledge, in a sense, is a drama that is participated in, but it's also a, des- a change in destiny that happens. A ch- the change that happens to the God happens to you as well. Can I, can I just make a modern analogy? I'm trying to think of modern analogies of this because we don't go to temples and we don't, you know, get initiated into secret knowledge per se because we have Google, right? Like there, there is no knowledge that's, you know, is, is hidden because it's all out there. Everyone can see it. So we don't get, it's hard for us to think about this hidden knowledge that only certain people have because all the important stuff is out there anyway, right? And if it's not out there, you can do a Freedom of Information Act and, and demand the government tell you certain things. It might take a while, but you can get it, right? So information for us is not hidden. It's information. And we, we, we get kind of this idea of, well, you know, what's the big deal? I've got all the information at, at my fingertips, and it gives us the illusion of control sometimes, right? If, I've got, if I know everything, then I can just do whatever I please. Or, or if I know everything, I just don't need to worry about anything, right? But that's an illusion in a sense. So here's my modern analogy. It's like going to Iowa State or any other modern university, right? The professors are the priests. They have the knowledge. They know things that you do not know. And if you go to that university and if you get initiated into their their four-year degree or six-year degree or mm, ten-year degree, if you're, you know, some of you are in those boats, um, uh, you can get a PhD, right? And, And you can know all knowledge on a certain subject. And and it will change your life and change your destiny. And everything will be different. Because why? You have been to the university. Right? But that's actually, if if you would, that's 
that's the comparison here I'm trying to make, is that's what it was like in Greek, Greek understanding of the mysteries. Like, you have to go there, you have to learn the special knowledge, it will change your life, it will change your destiny, and you can now participate in life based on that knowledge. We say, well, then what's the big deal? Well, again, we're back to the whole point of what story is the true story, Right? If you look at life, what story is the true story? I mean, is the true story that Zeus died and then he came back to life and that's why we have spring? Is that the true story for real? How do we know? <laughs> and, and here, Paul is making the bold assertion, and it's a bold assertion, okay? He's saying... It's been revealed to me, to the other apostles, to the people that Jesus has given this information to, that God exists. He is real in the world, but he is invisible. He is unknowable, but Christ came as God in the flesh. And not only that, but he died on a cross, and he rose again, not to bring spring occasionally, but to give us eternal life so he can conquer death and he can conquer evil and all of those things that we think are unconquerable and unknowable and uncontainable are conquerable and containable and knowable in Jesus Christ. That's his bold, amazing, mind-blowing claim. And that's why he says in verse 9, right? Which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. So what is he saying here? Let's look at the mystery revealed. What is he saying here? What is the mystery? First of all, it's the mystery of God's will. There's an amazing, again, a bold claim, right? That, that we can know what God wants what God wants of us, what God wants in the world, what God is working on. And this will here, it says, is according to his purpose. It's kind of blah in English in a sense. In Greek, it's probably better translated according to his good pleasure. That is, it's, it's purpose, but it's, it's a good pleasure. It's, it's that idea of he delights in it. It's, it's what he wants to do, Okay. So his will is not constrained by, well, I must do that. I, I made the world, and it's falling apart, and I guess I better fix it, but I don't really want to mess with it. Ever had a project like that? But that's not the prod. We're not a project for God. It's according to his good pleasure. He delights in this process and in this work that he is accomplishing. What is this good pleasure that he's, he wants to accomplish? So we hear here, which is set forth in Christ, okay? So, or another world is which he planned in Christ. So he's, he's helping us understand the design of the plan, and that whole plan is in Christ. It's in his son. It's in his anointed one. That, that he is designing this plan around Christ. What does he want to do with Christ? Well, he goes on. As a plan for the fullness of time. 
Now, this word plan in Greek, again, it's, it's, used, it's, used, it's literally the word means house law, and it, sometimes we translate it dispensation, it's the idea, or, or administration. It's the idea that, that he has, he wants to, how he wants to rule his, his house, so to speak, how he wants to rule his world. And that's where you get the word plan, but plan, again, is a little bit dry. It's that he, 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 wants, to, he wants to bring, in a sense, and make sure everything is managed and run well. As a plan for the fullness of time. This is, again, an interesting phrase. These are all interesting phrases here. So it's, it's not, we think, okay, he's talking about the end of time, and yes, he is. But the word for fullness here is not the word for end as much as it is the word for everything is detailed out, you know? Like, when you rent an apartment, you've got an apartment, but if it's not furnished, you're like, oh, okay, great. Can you really, how many of you would like to live in an unfurnished apartment? Arvin would. I don't know why. You know, he's only one person, right? Like, like, keep everything clear, everything clean. No. Why? We want something furnished. Why? Because we want a bed to sleep in. We want a couch to sit on. We want, we want forks and knives to eat, right? We want plates to put our food on. We want all of those things. Why? Because to live means to have details to our lives. And so when he's saying here, he's saying the plan for the fullness of time, he's saying at the end of time, all the details are there and they all work together to do what? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So he wants to bring all the details together, the, 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 but details that you would think would never be together the things in heaven, which you're like, we don't understand. We can't see. They're not, where are they? And the things on earth, the things we can see, but we also don't necessarily like. Man, why did this happen? What's going on here? Why is this the way it is? We have all these questions over here. We can't experience anything over here. And God's like, I'm going to bring both of those together in Christ. And the word for unite here is not the word for bring unity to. It's the word for sum up everything under. To put things all, so every, basically what he's saying is everything will make sense in Christ. <laughs> and not only in sense, but, but connected. They'll be bring together in a perfect design where all the details work properly. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. So this is God's plan, his purpose. When we say God is in control, you know, you can argue, okay, does that mean that, what about human will? And, but Paul's not worried about that at all. He's like, God is in control. And one key difference here between the mystery religions where God changes in order to accomplish something is he's saying here, blanket statement, God's not changing. What's changing is he's bringing everything that doesn't make sense into order, into fullness, into completeness. So by the, by the end of time, everything hangs together and everything is beautiful in its place. And God is not out of control. He's, there's nothing outside of his control. You say, well, what about evil? Or what about bad things that happen? Or what about just random things that happen? From our perspective, they might be random. 
but they're still under his control. Things are still evil, but God can even, even conquer evil and put it in its place, right? And turn it into good. And that's all summed up, he says, in Christ, in who Christ is, in what Christ accomplished, and what Christ will accomplish. It's all wrapped up in this one person. And again, that's a mystery. Like We wouldn't have imagined that from the beginning of time, that one person amongst the billions of people who live from... (laughs) From creation to whenever creation and time stops, the human race stops, that one person could matter to the whole race. And yet he does. Rescuing a people for his name from every tribe and tongue and language. And this is what he's saying is, this is the mystery of his will. This is, this is what God intends to do in the world, the project that he wants to make. He wants to take your life with all its weird angles and quirky personality. And, 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 and why do I have to live in 2020? <laughs> why, right? Why do I have to live here now? And in the fullness of time in Christ, connect it all up. So that at the end, it's beautiful and precious and livable and glorious. You say, I I don't get it. I get it. (laughs) I get that you don't get it. It's only accomplished through his power and his control and his ability, not ours. So if this is what he's working at, if this is his plan, if this is, when you look at the scope of history, if you say, this is actually what's going on in the world, that's an amazing thing to know, is it not? It's an amazing thing to know because you can look at a family member dying and say, I don't know how this makes sense. I don't know how this fits. I don't know how life can go on and yet know that in Christ it can. You can look at the the edges of your life and you're like, I don't fit here. I I don't understand what's going on. But you can say that in Christ, God can make something beautiful. Without that knowledge... Life is really, really, really hard, is it not? If you have to fit the pieces of your life together yourself, if you have to squeeze and massage evil things and try to wring something good out of it yourself, (laughs) most of us don't even like to try. But in Christ, this is the plan. This is what God is doing in the world. This is why he's even letting generation after generation go on because he's in the fullness of time bringing all of these details together to the praise of his glorious grace to say, look, we're chosen, we're adopted, we're redeemed. 
Look at this plan. And we're together in Christ. Everything connects. Things in heaven which we can't see and things on earth which we can't understand are brought together in Christ. So how do we, how do, we do this? Just a couple of thoughts here, just briefly. How do we live in the know? How do we live in the know? And this, in a sense, goes back, like I said, this is kind of a panel book. It's unfolding. So the things that have been said before affect what's happened, you know, what, what he's saying here. So the fact that we're chosen and that we're adopted and redeemed and formed help us to un- understand the plan a little bit better. We talk about being enslaved to our desires. That, not that, that we're forced by our desires to, to do something we don't want to do ourselves. Being enslaved by our desires means that you, you have your desires and you just live according to those desires. You just, that's what I want to do, so I do it. But re- being redeemed means that, that you can live not according to just what you want to do, but according to what God wants you to do, according to what's good for others. And you have this freedom not to live just for yourself. And so I just want to go to a couple passages that talk about this, this again, this mystery that we, are, we live under that we've, that's been revealed to us. So 1 Thessalonians 5, you can turn there. I'm going to put it on the screen here in a minute. 1 Thessalonians 5, again, he's talking about the times, the seasons. And this is where, is, is where again, where knowledge that we're talking about is more like farmer knowledge. It's like knowing where you're at in the seasons of life, Right? Uh, I'm getting to the season of life where I need cheater glasses in order to read. You know, I don't bring them up here. I, I stand back and I try to read my Bible from a distance, but eventually you're going to see me pull them out because I'm getting there, right? It's a season of life. You just got to live with certain seasons. And what he's saying here is, he's saying to them, you, 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 you know the season we're in. He goes on, for you, are, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. He's saying, when God sets everything right, the day when God, the day isn't just one little day, but it's a time, a season, when God sets everything light. He says, it's going to come like a thief in the night. It's not going to just, it's not going to be like, God's going to be like, hey, I'm starting the day in the Lord now. Uh, you, got, you, got, you got three minutes, three minutes, and then I'm going to start. <laughs> a thief in the knife just comes in whenever he wants to come in, right? In fact, he says, while people are saying there's peace and security, when the world seems like it's at peace and secure, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Man, he's just piling metaphor upon metaphor here, right? Understand labor pains too, right? Labor pains just come on you whenever they come on you. He's saying, when it looks like, when the world outside looks like, okay, everything's good, everything's peaceful, everything's secure, and all of a sudden, suddenly, boom, everything's going to fall apart. If that's true, if you understand that, if you understand that, that that is, in a sense, part of the mystery of how God works, he says, but you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you, you like a thief. He's like, you don't, you don't have to be surprised about what God is doing. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. 
He's like, hey, we don't have to operate in our world like we're, again, enslaved by our desires. We don't have to get so controlled by the evil around us and even the evil in us that we're like, hey, I've just got to medicate myself and get drunk. Why? Because there's nothing, I can't deal with life. So we don't have to be that way. But since we belong to today, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, this is part of the mystery that you should know. God has not destined you for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Christ. Again, your destiny, if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, is not the anger and wrath of God, but it's salvation and joy and peace who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. We're connected to him now. It's that whole idea of being chosen again. we got that relationship with him. How do we live, therefore? Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. He's saying, you know what? You don't have to live just for yourself <laughs> because it's been, you know, you're in the know you know how this is going to go. You can think not just about, well, I've got to, you know, I've got to make mortgage and I've got to build for retirement. I've got to take care of my kids and I've got to do this and I've got to do that. This is what I've got to do because if I don't do this, well, you know, you can pick your reason, right? I'll get arrested and go to prison or everybody think I'm a bad citizen or a bad dad or a bad mom or whatever. So no, you're free from that. You can now choose to live because of who God is and what God is doing in the world in order to encourage one another and build one another up. I can look around at the people around me and think, well, what do they need? How can I help them? I, I, I got, sure, I've got to take care of my stuff, but I've got enough life and I've got enough bandwidth, so to speak, because I know what the plan is. I can look around me and say, man, that, that, that person needs a word of encouragement. I, I can do that. Man, they need some help there. I can build them up a little bit. I can, can come alongside of them and help them out. How, how does that work? He, he ends it by saying this. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ for you. Again, Paul's making this bold claim. I know God's will for you. <laughs> I know God's will for you. You don't have to live for your own desires. You can say, you know what? Even in bad situations, I can rejoice because I know what the plan is. Even, I, even in bad situations, I, I don't have to depend on my own resources. I can pray without ceasing. <laughs> He's not talking about pray without ceasing like this top down, like you better do it or God is going to be angry with you. That's not the way he's approaching it. He's approaching it from, hey, you're connected to God now. You know what God's plan is. You know how God is, is going to operate in the world. Therefore, hey, you get to pray without ceasing. Isn't that awesome? You don't have to like go to a temple or do this or do that to know God hears you. You can pray. You can know God hears you. Go ahead. Do it right now. Give thanks in all circumstances. You say, how is it possible to give thanks in all circumstances? Again, because we know that in the end, even though we don't understand it, we know the plan. God is going to connect all those details up into a beautiful thing. And that is, you have to believe that by faith, right? 
Because I get it. There's so many details in our lives where we look at it and say, I don't know how it's possible for anything good to come from this. I don't see how that this could be good or that I could give thanks here. But this is, this is the God we worship. He's more powerful than us. He's more wise than us. He's more knowing than us. He can take even the details that we could never figure out about our lives and how to make them work together, and he can make them work for good. That's who he is. And that's why we can respond by giving thanks in all circumstances. Because we're like, I know what God's will is. I know he's connecting all the dots together. And yes, I've got to figure out how to respond to those dots, but I can give thanks. Because the dots are under his control, not my control. That's living in the know. That's living in the know. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Can I give you one more verse that talks about doing the will of God? He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Saying, you, you can know God's will, and you can live it out. You can give up your own desires, and in a sense, give yourself to God, saying, God, I'm going to live for you, not just for what I want. How is that possible? He's saying, you're renewing your mind. You're letting your mind understand what, what God says and what God's plan is and letting yourself now operating according to that knowledge. And what's fascinating here is he doesn't say, and therefore you're going to do X, Y, and Z, and boom, it's done. What he, what he says here, it's fascinating, is he's saying, by testing you may discern. He's saying, you can prove this out. Sometimes we think Christianity is like, it's a formula. You plug in the formula, you're like, avoid the bad things, do the good things, and everything will turn out okay. But that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, you give yourself to God, and in the midst of the process of life, you're like, okay, I think this is what God wants me to do. I'm going to pursue this path, but I'm going to listen to God. Maybe he's going to change a different direction. Maybe he's going to say, hey, slow down. Maybe he's going to stop that. I don't want you to do that right now. And in the midst of all of that, you're like, well, I thought God wanted me to do this, but I realized that, yeah, he... He's, he's massaging, and he's going a different direction than I thought he was. But I, but I can change. Christianity is not a, a religion where you check your mind at the door and just be like, well, I just, I'm just a robot. Just do what I'm supposed to do. Instead, you, you live your life, and you think to yourself, who is God? How do I live out God's story in my life? Because I know who he is. I know what he's about. And I'm going to work for that. I'm going to do good. The good I can do. Why? Because I know what the future holds. And I know who holds the future. And so we build families. And we give our lives. And we serve in our jobs. And we, and we do good where we can. And we love others and we build them up. And we rejoice always and we pray without ceasing. We do give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because we know God is at work. He's not quit on this world. This, this project is not done that he's working on. He has a delight. He, he, he can't wait to reveal the end product. That's what he's about. 
And so we can live in the know, not based on our performance, not based on our control of the situation. So here's just a couple of the thoughts that I have. Being in the know means knowing you're not in control, even though it feels like you have the illusion of control. Right? Being in the know means I'm not really in control. Even though we try to stay in control of our lives, I try to Google everything, and I try to make sure everything happens. Being in the know means you realize God's the one in control, and he's doing something beyond what even I could ask or imagine. Being in the know means knowing where things are headed, even when it feels more chaotic, right? The more knowledge you get, the more you Google things, the more you realize the world is a very chaotic place. But being in the know means that, you know, he's in control, even when things feel more chaotic. Being in the know means knowing why we can live for God and others, even when circumstances seem to demand we live for ourselves or would cause us to be self-pitying. We know what the plan is. We know what God is doing in the world. That's why I can live for, I can, you know what? It's an amazing thing. You can live to serve and love others even though you know they're not going to respond right away or you know that you'd be like, I don't think this is going to do any good at all. And yet you can still do good in the situation. Why? Because God is in control, not you. That's being in the know. Being in the know means knowing we get to do this not that we have to do this. We get to do this. God is, God is doing an amazing plan, and we get, we get to be a small part of it. We're in the know now. You, you, you get the point is, you get up in the morning, and if you're in the know, you realize, you know what? That this means that this day is out of my control, but it's in God's control. <laughs> and, and it means that, that I get to do, I'm going to get to do some small good. Hopefully, God, I'm going to participate in God's story in some way, but I'm also going to mess up, and that's okay. I'm just going to, get, I get to walk with God today. I get to, to see him and operate, and I get to see him work, and that's, that's, that's great. That's being in the know. This world is, in that sense, demystified. Here's how maybe I would say it in summary. God is not in the process of changing, but in changing everything to be connected to Christ, willingly or unwillingly. We get to live with him in the midst of this process. He never changes. He's our rock. This is the anchor to your soul. You know God's plan. And yes, life can throw you curveballs and difficulties and hardships, and you can fail, and you can, you can wonder what's going on, but God is still in control, and he is working his plan for our good. He will not let that go. You can anchor your soul to that. So this week, I took a couple of days off, and uh, we're trying to finish painting our house. Um, but one, one wall, one of the north walls, uh, the siding of the house is wood, and it, it's over, I don't know how many years, it's rotted, okay? So, so we had to replace the siding on the wall. So uh, I, can, I can put up siding, I can do that. It's, I can cut things and put them into shapes. Uh, 
David Fee came and helped me out yesterday. We were at the stage where we were starting. I, the, the hardest part, frankly, was ripping. I'm sitting here and my arms are aching, but the hardest part was just ripping the siding off the wall. That, that was actually the hardest part. Because the nails, they had ring-shaped nails, which means you, anyway, it was, it was a pain. The, 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 we, were, we were putting up the siding, and, and so, so just to help you understand, I, you couldn't tell where the studs were because the insulation for this, this porch was on the outside of the studs. You couldn't tell where the studs were. And so you're putting things up, and then you're, you're hoping to figure out where the studs were. But the house was made by someone like me, which means you couldn't just go 16, 16, 16, 16. You know what I mean? It, it was just a little off here and there. That's the way I would have built it, just a little off. Um, and so I was having Tad, instead of nails, he was using deck screws because you can get bite and you know you got, got what you wanted. So he's putting deck screws. But, but he can't find a stud all the time. He's like, Dad, I can't find a stud. I'm like, just keep going. We can caulk that, you know. And then we got to the stage of the project where, you know, you're, you're like, you mess up occasionally here and there. And I was like, it's okay. We can cock that. No big deal, you know. And so finally he turned to me and he's like, Dad, when you get old and decrepit, wait, what, what, what's that going to happen? <laughs> but he said, when you get old and decrepit, I'm going to build you a house out of caulk. And I'm going to tell you, you told me we can caulk that. So we're all good, right? We are not living in a house that needs to be cocked. We like to try to cock it. We try to fix it up, fill the holes, do all the things we have to do. And I get in a real house, you got to do that. We cocked it, okay? But God's house is not a cocked house. It's perfect. And you can look at the details of your life and wonder and say, why? What's going on? I don't understand. Again, the anchor to your soul is this isn't cocked together. He's planned it from the foundation of the world. It is his plan. He is working it out. And one day we're going to see it in all its glory. So you know that. Live it. Trust it. Believe it. Walk in it. This is God's plan, and there is no other. It's a perfect plan. Will you trust it? Heavenly Father, we thank you that our lives are not cocked up to be the best that we can make them. And that's all we're going to get. But you are working out a plan, even in the midst of our failures and problems and difficulties and challenges, that is a perfect plan to bring everything under Christ, to help, to help us to see the wonder and majesty of who he is and how he's able to accomplish conquering death and evil so that one day evil will end it's going to be over and done with and dead and what a glorious day that will be help us to live in the know help us to live not for ourselves but to rejoice always to pray without ceasing to give thanks in all circumstances because your will will be accomplished. And it's a beautiful, perfect, 
glorious will. Help us to live trusting that this week in your son's name. Amen.